I, and I just found myself whispering my own prayers, despite the fact that this place was severely broken. It was still standing. And it was the first church I had actually been in in a while. And it wasn't a church that had a rock band. It's not a church that had a coffee shop. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But it was a church that had been severely broken by people who wanted to desecrate it. And, and yet they didn't. That was Ash Gallagher describing uh, a time where she walked into a church that had been bombed by ISIS and what she found there. And it is just a beautiful story. Ash is a correspondent and a producer. She's written for CNN International, Al Jazeera International, and she writes all over the Middle East. She comes with a perspective that is so needed and so hopeful and so eye-opening. And this conversation was really, really healthy and good. I think it'll be really helpful in terms of understanding what's happening in Jerusalem right now, and also in terms of what's happening in Iraq right now as that country continues to rebuild. So enjoy this conversation and then get in touch with Ash via all of her information that I've put on the show notes. Enjoy the podcast, my friends. Hey, Ash, it is so good to have you on the podcast. And I know we kind of worked on this for a couple of weeks and you just literally came back from Mosul earlier on today. So hello, how are you? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Ah, thank you for having me. I'm I'm so glad to I'm so glad to be here with you and your audience today. So, um, I'm looking forward to having a conversation. Well, we met. I'm trying to remember, but I think we met at that Rob Bell thing in Laguna Beach a few years ago, right? I mean that that is where we met, correct? Yeah, summer 2015. Mm-hmm. He was doing like a one of his two day events that he does, and uh, I think we had dinner together. It was I mean yeah. it was you and I and a handful of people. I think that went out with Pete Rollins and we got into some deep theology or something over dinner. Yeah. And then uh, afterwards, we just stayed connected on Facebook and Twitter and all that good, sweet stuff. So anyway, um, you are we're going to dive right in, Ash, if that's okay. Sure. You are a journalist. You're a correspondent. You're a producer. You work with video, photography, but you've done a lot of work in the Middle East. Uh, And so I can't wait to talk about Jerusalem and Iraq and what you're seeing. But before we get into that, why journalism? Um, well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one, it made sense. Um, I was, I was always a pretty decent writer. Uh, even in high school, that was kind of where I found some of my strengths was in my English and history classes. Um, and, um, you know, by the time I think I was probably about 19, uh, I actually really knew that I wanted to be a correspondent. Um, you know, 9-11 happened when I was 18 years old, and I certainly, that opened up the Middle Eastern world. And so, you know, at the time, I don't know that I knew that I was going to end up in the Middle East, but it certainly was a direction I was I was looking at. And, um, you know, I, I just, I think I just had it on my heart and mind that, that it was just something I really, I really wanted. And it was the first thing that anyone had ever told me yes to. I, I had a uh, former 
a youth pastor who actually who had written a book called uh, Life Unlimited in Colorado Springs. And I remember sitting at his house and he and his wife and I were sitting there at 10, 11 o'clock at night over coffee and as one does in, in college and um, and going through the book. And, and he I remember him asking me, you know, what is it you really want to do? What's what's sort of the extreme goal? What's the you know, what what do you aim to do? And, and I and I told him that this is what I wanted to do. And and he looked at me and said, those come a dime a dozen. Are you sure? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, well, then let's see how we can get there. So he was the first person I think to really encourage me in a direction that seemed a little crazy. And, and I've kind of just worked toward that ever since, I guess. I love that. I love that he encouraged you versus like, oh, wait a minute. I mean, that's going to be dangerous. What are you thinking? You know, have you really prayed about this enough? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. um, cause you could have gotten, and, and maybe that's another question. Like, did you get pushback from parents or other friends that said, man, that sound that does sound crazy. I mean, I know you're kind of crazy, but that that honestly sounds crazy. Uh, I think over the years, I definitely got pushback from family and friends who were all a bit bewildered at um, that that desire. But more than that, too, is I've always had a bit of a free spirit. Even in my 20s, I traveled all over the United States a lot. I would up and move places. I'd go on road trips. And and then when I started going overseas, it was even more mind boggling. So I think that there was always a bit of bewilderment at just the part of me that just such, had such a hunger to see and explore and learn about the world from a different different way. So there was pushback, but I think that that simultaneously, I just always really had this, this sort of innate um, spirit that was just I, thinking that I could do this. And I, and I do credit, I do credit, um, their names for John and Sarah Bolin, and I do credit John and Sarah uh, for, for their encouragement. I actually have it tattooed on my arm in, in Greek, uh, live without limits. Nice. And so it's kind of my mantra that, that it's, it's, it's very important to me to sort of take risks. And even when it's scary and even when it's terrifying, which it can be sometimes, to, to just keep going. And, um, and that goes for, for ever, any change that I go through personal or professional. So yeah, there was pushback for sure. I definitely experienced it, but simultaneously, I've also had a lot of good people around me that have also encouraged me. So it, I've had a mix of both and, and somehow I'm, I'm still here. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad you've had encouragement. That's so good. Um, Okay, so you just literally were in Mosul. What yes. were you doing there? Uh, tell us kind of what was happening. Well, today um, I'm working, I'm actually working on a story that will come out days, but basically the Iraqi government over the weekend, they declared that uh, ISIS, or, or as we say in Arabic, Daesh, uh, that they have been fully expelled from the country, that is according to the government. Um, however, the the Daesh fighters and militants that they have arrested over the course of the past, uh, you know, few years over the past several months are now being put on trial. And so I um, I actually went into a courtroom today uh, to watch some of the trials, and that's what we were there for. Wow, wow. So are you going back, or is that like a one day? 
shot and you write a story from there? Will you do TV interview from there? What happens? From um, there? I'm going to, I'm going to write a story from there. Uh, uh, Yahoo news is actually picking up my story and, uh, my fixer, he, he's a very, uh, when I say a fixer, I mean someone who literally fixes you up with the story. They often, uh, also translate for you and so forth, but he has very good relationships in Mosul. He's very good at what he does. He has a good relationship with the judges in this case. And so he got permission from the judges for us to come in, uh, today to be able to, to view some of what's going on there. I have enough material uh, that I've been working on over the past uh, probably couple of weeks that I'll put it all together uh, to actually form, form the story. And I, it will be written uh, this time. Wow. Okay, so when the Iraqi government says to the people, hey, ISIS or Daesh has been expelled from the country, what is the reaction of people? Well, there was some celebration in Baghdad in particular. There were definitely people that they sort of took it as more of symbolic than anything. Uh, so you have people in the streets who, in, in Baghdad in particular, there was a military parade, there were celebrations. But where I live in Erbil, most people have kind of gone back to normal life. Uh, the, the, the Kurdish control the northern part of Iraq, uh, the, the, at least where I live, and their, their military, the Peshmerga, um, they, they really haven't been uh, fighting or doing anything for a while. You also have hundreds of thousands of people that are actually still in uh, refugee camps or, or displaced camps. So you have a lot of people, too, who are actually still have a long way to go because they're still stuck in a camp. They can't go back to their home because it's destroyed. It might still have bombs in it. Um, they might not have the paperwork to even leave the camp at this point. Um, now, we were in Mosul today, and people in Mosul, the ones that have been able to go back, they're trying They're trying to get back to life. There were some shops open. There were restaurants open. There were We stopped at a, a falafel stand and had falafel for lunch. And so you know, there are people that are trying to bring back a sense of life into the city, at least in part of the city where where it's not quite as as uh, destroyed. Um, so you have a mix of things. You have some that are that are celebrating some that they almost don't care because they have no life to, to go back to. And others who are just just want to go back to normal, go back to school, go back to work, yeah. um, you know, go on with life. What would you say, Ash, is, like sort of characterizes the spirit of the Iraqi people? Like what are some words you would use? Uh, hopeful. Um, there are people who persevere. Uh, there are people who survive and they do it well. Um, you know, I remember, I remember during, during the war, during the fight, I was in Mosul and I remember we, we got to a neighborhood that was just outside the edge of the front line. So like the next neighborhood up would have been the front line and we were in the neighborhood right behind it. And you could hear bombs going off in the, in the distance. You could hear rockets, you could hear airstrikes even. And there were these two men uh, who were probably, I would guess, in their 60s maybe. And they were uh, sitting in chairs and they were just talking. And we're talking one neighborhood away. You could hear bombs and fighting going off. But these two men were just sitting there casually as if it were normal. 
for them to just sit there and just 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 chatting, wow. talking politics or whatever, uh, because this is life. Yeah. Wow. And it's been one of it's been an image that's stuck in my mind. I, I, I may have it on, on my social media as well, but it, it's an image that has stuck out in my mind because it's an image that just showed that this was a people that they, they've seen war and they expect to probably see it again. And they do the best they can to just keep going. Yeah. That's what I suspected. Thanks for, um, I mean, it was such a great description, even with those two men sitting there with the bombs going off a block away. This is life. This is life. Yeah. And they find ways to be resilient and laugh and celebrate their families. And um, I, I just think that's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, so I would love, you were just in Jerusalem. And of course, uh, this is such a big story right now. Yeah. Our, the, the president of the United States has just decided to name or to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So what are you seeing in Jerusalem among Palestinians, among Israelis? Uh, what are you seeing? Well, the last time I was there was in February, but I had covered this story before for a couple of years. Uh, and I had been in Gaza actually back in 2014 during the, the 50 day war at that time. And, you know, here's, here's the thing. Um, Palestinian Christians are actually quite distressed by this announcement. Uh, because they're Palestinian and they go through a lot of the same challenges with the Israeli government uh, that their fellow uh, Muslim Palestinians go through as well. And Jerusalem has significance for Islam, for Christianity, for uh, Judaism. And, you know, even the Palestinian Christians are people who want Jerusalem to be a city that sort of represents that kind of peace and unity. And unfortunately, they, they don't see that having the opportunity to happen uh, under, under the Israeli government, uh, which is accused of a lot of apartheid practices against Palestinians. Um, and so there is, there is a lot of protests that are actually happening uh, in the occupied West Bank and in Gaza, and even in the Israel proper areas. Uh, there are Palestinians in Lebanon who still live in camps from previous wars. They have protested at the U.S. Embassy, and that turned into clashes yesterday. Uh, there are Palestinians in several other countries that have also gone out to protest. But even more than that, of course, you also see uh, Arab, the Arab world uh, opposing this move as well because they feel, uh, especially among Arab Muslims, that, that Jerusalem is important to them too. And so to recognize it only as the capital of Israel, they feel hampers the peace process that could potentially be in the region because the Palestinians say that they, they don't have the same rights as, as the Israelis do. And so it, it takes away any idea of a two-state solution, which is one option that has been presented by many politicians. And so there are Palestinians that I've, I've seen and heard talk about the ideas that, that says, okay, you know what, then we need to have a one-state solution where Jerusalem is a, a multinational capital and where the Israelis do not rule it as a Jewish state, uh, that they rule it as an actual democratic state where everyone gets to be included. But there isn't a lot of hope for that either, because the Netanyahu government 
uh, is demanding that he be recognized as a Jewish state, but there seems to be conflict with calling it a religious state and calling it a democracy at the same time. Uh, because a number of Palestinians and Arab Israelis have faced uh, a number of challenges with the, the, the Israeli government when it concerns having uh, equal rights, um, you know, socially and politically. Exactly. So well said. I have some friends that are Palestinian that literally in their backyard is the wall. I mean, that, that, that's what they look yeah. on in their actual backyard. They have little kids. Uh, I think they're in their 30s um, and they're Palestinian Christians full of hope, full of light, full of just the most expansive views of humanity. And they see this as um, just just harming, harming the peace process. Um, okay, so Ash, you uh, were in Colorado Springs, one of the bastions mm -hmm. for evangelical Christianity. What do you say yeah. to Christians maybe who are kind of getting excited because now we're seeing the conflict in the Middle East escalate. And what that means, of course, is, you know, that means the Messiah is coming back soon. So we can really celebrate that and we can, you know, be excited and we can start rubbing our hands together. I mean, what do you, what would you say to those types of folks? Uh, first, I would say to you, your excitement is uh, misplaced. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, that you would need to learn how to accept the fact, first and foremost, that Eastern Christians are not the same as Western practice, and that there has been a lot of doctrine that has damaged the idea of, of what God promised and what God calls people to, um, which is not about setting up and forcing the hand of God by trying to create the end times and isolating Jerusalem, um, I just, I just don't, I just don't see that as an even a, as an effective as an, an effective policy in faith or in politics. And the, and the truth is, is I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that it is it is good to try and force political policy as a way to try and force your personal belief system about the end times. The truth is we've been in the end times since Jesus ascended to heaven. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned, I just don't think we really know, you know, I mean, the Bible is clear that no one knows the day or the time. And, and I think that that'll be of the divine's choosing, you know, I, I, but at the end, at the end of the day, I, I just think we don't know. I just, to me, there was there was a rabbi in the seventies. Uh, I think his name is uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Yeah. And he, I remember watching an interview with him, and he said, you know, he he was asked about the afterlife and what happens after death, and his response was brilliant because he said, um, I'm going to let God take care of what happens in the afterlife. I'm on Earth now. So it is my responsibility to take care of how I am now. And, and what, I, what I take out of that is that um, how we treat others and how we act as the divine in the extension of the divine in the world um, matters right now, which means, which means I would say to the evangelical crowd who's supporting this decision, you're trying to force the hand of God. You cannot do that. 
that's not what you're meant to do. That's not what you're called to do. You're called to preach good news. You're called to bring life. You're called to bring life more abundantly. You're called to bring peace. You're called to bring joy and the fruits of the spirit. You're not ca- called to force uh, some sort of Tim LaHaye, Kirk Cameron end time situation. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like, you know, novels like that and even men like Hal Lindsey and some of those guys that came out in the 80s and 90s really sort of indoctrinated an entire generation of people to believe something that, that isn't doesn't line up with the reality on the ground. And the Palestinian Christians are being harmed by this. And Palestinian Christians will be closer to you than the Netanyahu government. Um, so I, I just I think that I think that their excitement is just grossly misplaced. Yeah, I agree with you. And thank you for saying that so clearly. I think there's you know any time we find ourselves in in any situation hoping for the harm of other people so that a certain agenda can be pushed pushed forward and that is on any level then we need to pause <laughs> and say you know this this is as unlike uh the person that we claim to follow as mm. is possible um mm. as is possible so uh, well and you know yeah. too steve is is that that you know i touch on the the, the palestinian christian bit because i feel like if if i'm if I can communicate to evangelicals in America about how to look at this, that that's the only way I know how to do it. You know, the Muslim population is just as important too, and they are just as yeah. uh, they, they are human, and they, in, in my eyes, they, they are holy, sacred people, and 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 they deserve our respect as much as we would ask of theirs. And so I, I do think that, that that needs to be taken into consideration. That being said, I just think that that the evangelical in America that is getting excited over this, they're not going to hear that. They're going to have to try and come to terms with, I think, the idea that there are Palestinian Christians who, you know, who are affected by this as well and try and find some common ground there. Absolutely. And uh, okay, Ash, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just going to throw out this name for, for any, uh, anyone who wants to hear more about Palestinian Christians. Isn't Elias Shakur uh, a Palestinian Christian, theologian, priest? Does that name ring a bell for you? Uh, that is not a name I know well, although it's very familiar to me. Um, I thought that he might have been uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking him up as we're talking now, and it looks like he's based in, in Haifa and Nazareth, so in the northern part of Israel proper, um, and he's, uh, he was an archbishop, it appears, uh, and so, yeah, I think that's worth it. I would actually also want to put out there to folks that there's a, an organization called Rabbis for Human Rights hmm. um, that's based out of Jerusalem, and, um, and Rabbi Asherman uh, is the name of the sort of lead leader of the organization. Uh, he's actually somebody that I have deep respect for that I've met personally. He was actually, they, they actually, Rabbis for Human Rights goes out and they actually help Palestinians defend their olive groves. Yeah. Um, and he actually, uh, he was actually stabbed by a 17 year old Jewish settler mm. when he was, when he was doing this. And he is a man who, who truly in his heart of hearts wants peace uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, and he truly believes that human life far exceeds the value 
uh, over the land. Yeah. Um, and so I would I would recommend to anyone who's really interested in, in understanding, um, you know, rabbis and, and Jewish leaders who understand Jewish tradition and their perspective on this um, to, to look them up and see what they do. So rabbis for human rights, I'll put that on the show notes. Even as we're talking, I'm, uh, I've had Lynn Hybels on the podcast a couple of times, um, and we're friends, and she's been taking people over to Israel-Palestine for years. Uh, she has, she works with, I think, a group called Telos, and they, they are pro-Israel, pro-Palestine, pro-peace, pro-Jesus, and pro-the United States. And uh, they have this mm. platform that really um, carves out a third way of looking at uh this sincere um, dilemma where people are m most, most people want to just jump on one side or the other. And they're saying there's a different way. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to put that on the show notes as well. Uh, okay, okay. Ash, I would love if you can think of one to hear a story when you were covering something where you left feeling really inspired. Uh, yes. Yes, I can. Actually, it's it's the story. It's the story in Iraq that that uh, stays with me um, quite, quite well. And that was about a little over a year ago, actually, uh, that, you know, the, the battle for Mosul was, was certainly raging and in full form. And uh, there had been a village, a Christian village, actually, that is on the north side called Batnaya. And some friends of mine who, uh, some very good friends of mine who run an organization called Preemptive Love Coalition, you may have heard of them. Oh, yeah. Um, they had one of their, one of their guys, Matt Willingham, he actually tells, he, he tells me about this, this town, Batnaya, and how they had gone up there and they had gone in with one of the priests and they had seen the church and he tells, and I don't do his story justice, but he basically tells the story of how they walked in and Dash had actually used the church for target practice. So they had shot down the, the Jesus statue. They had shot the, the Mary uh, figurine. They had, they had torn it up. And they had put graffiti all over the walls. And some of the graffiti actually said, Allo Akbar, which means in Arabic, God is great. And so he turns to one of the priests and, and the priest tells him, he says, you know, Christians actually say that too. And the priest says, yes. He said, but Dash doesn't understand the heart of what God is great means. And again, I'm not really doing Matt's story justice, but it encouraged me to go. So within about three days, I got two of my colleagues and I said, we have to go to this village. And so we, we went up and it took a little bit of convincing to let the, the guards, to let us through the checkpoint. It had only been liberated, I think, for a few weeks. And so there was it hadn't even been really touched yet. There was nobody back. There were, there were IEDs all over the place. Uh, they really couldn't let anyone back into the village, but we, we spoke to one of the, the colonels and he, he said, look, I'll, I'll ask you, escort you myself. We'll take in some of my guys. And so they took us in and they cleared a path for us to be able to walk very directly to the church. So we wouldn't step on anything questionable. And we had full gear on. I mean, we were wearing bulletproof vests and helmets. There was a fear that there might be possibly snipers that had gotten back in. And so we went into the church and it was actually at sunset. So you can imagine the lighting in this place is phenomenal. Uh, and we climbed to the top of the steeple. And 
um, you know, you just looked out over the land and you could see every building torn apart. <clears throat> and so actually when my colleagues, uh, they were still doing some interviews, I decided to go back down into the church and it had gotten just dark enough that you really couldn't see much. And one of the guard, one of the soldiers actually followed me in to make sure I would be safe. And I went in and I, and I just found myself whispering my own prayers. Um, because what, what, I found was this when I walked in was that um, despite the fact that this place was severely broken, it was still standing. And it was the first church I had actually been in in a while. And it wasn't a church that had a rock band. It's not a church that had a coffee shop. Not that there's anything wrong with those <laughs> things, but it was a church that had been severely broken by people who wanted to desecrate it. And, and yet they didn't. And there was something really holy about that moment. And it, it, it went into my story. I, I, I was basically um, using the, the, what had happened to this church in a political story because it was right after I think uh, Trump had been uh, elected. And, um, and, and there, was, there was this rift. And most of the soldiers that we were with, they're, they're Muslim men. And when I asked them about, uh, about liberating this, this village and this church, they said, look, the, the, the Christians here, they're our brothers and our sisters. They're our family. They're our soulmates. And so we want them to come home and we want to protect this place. And we want this place to be restored. And it was just a really fantastic moment, I think, uh, to, to really show in a story that there is a sense of, of unity among a lot of Muslims and Christians here, despite everything that Daesh tried to do, which they really tried to kill and destroy everyone. Um, and, and they weren't people that I think represented the faith that they claimed. And I think the people that did represent the Muslim faith were those soldiers who defended this village and who put the cross back up on the steeple and who, you know, it was important for them to, to make it safe. And, and they continue to do that so that eventually their Christian brothers and sisters can come home. That's an amazing story. I think I saw that story, Ash. I think I saw, I, I just remember whether it was yours or uh, Jeremy um, and preemptive love. I, I saw that cross that had been put back up um, in that city. Uh, that's just it's stunning. That's just a stunning, amazing story. And it brings hope. You know, it, it, it like the humanity is yeah. not <laughs> as awful as we no. are led to believe. Um, certainly there are, are, you know, ISIS, Dash. I mean, yes. Uh, but but uh, when, when I hear a story like that, it, rise, it hope rises up for me so good. Well, and I think, I think we're, I think we're all subject to the human condition. You know, one of the things that I learned about being in Iraq is that there actually were a lot of people who joined Daesh because they didn't have food. Yeah. They didn't feel like the government represented them. They had a gun held to their head. They wanted their children to live. They were people who wanted to survive. And so they succumbed to the human condition of just wanting to have some sense of, of, control over their own narrative because they had lost all control. Yeah. And, and so I think that, that we all are subject to that. We all can actually slip into our worst selves sometimes. Oh yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, 
it doesn't mean that I don't think Dash should, should be held accountable for its crimes, but I do think that there is a sense of having to understand what what happened in a place like Iraq? Why did so many people sympathize with them? Well, they sympathized because they didn't feel like they had anyone else to turn to. Right. Right. Oh, thank you so much for bringing that up. I, I think that's such an important perspective to see and hear that, um, you know, perhaps we would do the same thing as awful as that sounds if, if it was either let my child starve or join ISIS. I mean, that just sounds horrible. And yet, most of us have never been in that situation. So how could we say what we would do? Um, right. So uh, last question, this has been so good. I mean, I feel like I could go on for hours yeah. talking to you, but last sure. question, uh, how, how has your work influenced your spirituality, your belief in God and how you practice it? Uh, it's changed and it's still changing. Um, you know, I, I am going through a transformative season even now. Um, I, you know, I, I came from quite a conservative background. Uh, I went to a mega church. I went to youth group on Wednesday nights. Um, I was a church kid growing up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And, um, you know, over time, I think, you know, and my closest friends will say this, they've watched me over time sort of experience life in general uh, through just personal and professional where, you know, things broke open for me. And, you know, I became, I went from maybe being a hard ass to hopefully uh, a more open-minded person, or at least open to learning. And I think in the, the past few years, uh, I've definitely become, I think, maybe more of a mystic in my faith. Uh, I think that, that, you know, the Jesus narrative of, of death and resurrection is certainly the most, um, it was the primary message that, that I sort of uh, think that, that needs to be put out into the world because it, it, it's about, it's about life. But I think more so is, is just this idea that, that I actually just don't have all the answers and that I've even, you know, I mean, even Richard Rohr talks about, you know, the, the value of things like, like yoga and Buddhism and the values in Hinduism and the values in these other faiths around the world that actually do tap into something divine. And so I've sort of opened myself up to, to learning some really, unique things about the spirit of the divine in, in my life and in the world. And I think that, you know, I think that I've, I feel like I'm processing a lot of new things with all of that, but I think that ultimately that I, I've, I've gone from a place of having sort of my own, drawing my own conclusions on something to saying, you know what, I really don't know much at all. And there's actually freedom in that. There's freedom in not knowing. There's freedom in mystery. There's freedom in saying, someone else teach me something about your faith and about your life and about who you are and how the divine works in you. Uh, because I can't determine how, how the divine should work in you. And, and I think that's, it's, it's, it's learning how to be gracious and it's learning how to be, and I'm not perfect at it. And I still have probably my own dogmatic ideas about certain things. And I, I still, you know, I, I'm, I'm completely flawed um, in every way. But I think that my faith has changed by way of just opening me up, um, you know, making me almost more receptive, I think, and more even vulnerable at times. I definitely have been experiencing a... 
uh, sort of my soul busting open into a very vulnerable space in even the last six months. Um, I think that, you know, covering war kind of does that to you anyway. And um, I think what it's also done is, is it's created a space in me where I'm learning to kind of feel everything, right? So, so you know, sort of, I, I feel skinless a little bit. Wow. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's, it's creating, it's creating a space in me to, to, to learn once again, um, how to, how to hear other people and, and maybe find something divine in that, that, that I can take from that and that I can, I can apply to my own life and make my faith stronger. If, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Just beautiful. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> For that sure. and, and for everything else in this uh, conversation, Ash, so good. If people want to find you and follow you, what's the best place for them to go? Well, um, my own website is ashgallagher.com. And then uh, I am on Instagram, actually, probably even more than Twitter, but Instagram and Twitter both are at BeatNickJourno. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure some people can probably find me on Facebook through you or um, or, or whatever. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly I would say Instagram is probably my favorite way to tell people come find me because I post pictures and I, uh, you know, sort of po post backstories, uh, to things that I'm working on and things that I'm doing. So, okay. I will put all those things on the show notes, your website and especially Instagram. Uh, and, uh, it's great. You're the, the cover or the front the front page, the landing page of your website is just got a, such a cool picture of you with, um, you got a camera in your hand and, and the sort of scarf pulled up over your, uh, you know, there's like smoke in the background. <laughs> it's so intense and so good. Um, so please visit Ash's website or Instagram account and get to know her. She's fascinating as you have heard, and she's doing really, really good work in the world. So, uh, Ash, thank you so much. This was so fun, uh, and so informative and I know it'll be super helpful for people just to get a bigger perspective on what's happening around the world. So, um, you are the bomb. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. See you very much. So, okay. Grace and peace, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's author, Twitter at Steve Ween's and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash this good word. The truth was you knew you were losing that fight in your suburban